we're going to talk about Ruby Gems. Um, but before that, I have a few questions for you. How long have you been with Shopify? Yeah, it's been a bit more than five years. So my journey here might be a bit different from, uh, I guess, some others where Shopify has this program called the Dev Degree Program where you can earn a university degree in computer science and work part-time at Shopify as an internship. So I went into this program right after high school. So during university, I would, I guess, complete my degree, but also have internships at Shopify. And I graduated maybe a year or two ago. So I only been working full-time probably two years now. And I understand you are a part of the core team for Ruby Gems. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's, I don't think we label ourselves core, but there, I think Ruby Central has something called the open source team. So Ruby Central is like, I guess, owns Ruby Gems and its systems, and they have an or- open source team, I guess, like, they work on, some people work on Bundler, some people work on RubyGems, some people work on RubyGems.org. And I had the opportunity while I was in Shopify to work in RubyGems.org and implement some features that I like we thought would be good for the whole Ruby community to use, not just Shopify. And uh, yeah, I guess to answer your question, I, I consider myself like a RubyGems.org maintainer. I don't know if I would call myself a part of the core team. I've met you in person, and I know you're a maintainer for RubyGems. For our listeners who don't know who Jenny Shen is, can you introduce yourself to us? Yes. Hi, everyone. I am Jenny. I'm a senior developer at Shopify, and I work in the Rails infrastructure team there. I've watched your talk twice and the title of your talk uh at rails world which is uh demystifying the ruby package ecosystem when you are talking about uh the ruby package uh i mean ruby james and then bandler and how they work together for the ruby on rails ecosystem there was a term that caught my attention. Well, not a term, but actually a name of an algorithm that's called uh, PubGrab. Uh, it's, it's, I think it, originally it was implemented in Rust, right? Yeah, I think it was for the Dart programming language, but I'm not too sure. Yes, I think it was for Dart. PubGrab itself, as a gem on GitHub from what I see here, is a uh, is a version solving algorithm implemented in Rust, and then during your talk, you mentioned something called traits. Can you elaborate on the concept of traits and how they are used in the PubGraph resolver to avoid conflicts? It was interesting when I was doing this research on this talk to figure out what this PubGrub algorithm was all about. When I was doing this research, found out like Natalie's brother came up with the name while he was like cooking PubGrub. I don't even know what PubGrub is. I think it's like a type of food, but do you know what PubGrub is? Like not as the I don't algorithm? Want to know. <laughs> okay, yeah, me neither. Like I didn't do that kind of research, but I assume it was a type of food. 
but yeah and then when I was looking at like how the algorithm like what was about there were two terms that were like caught that like were repeated a lot and that were one of them that you mentioned is traits other I think commonly more known as term but I didn't want to say term and term twice but traits and then something called incompatibilities so a trait or a term is basically just a range of versions so like this could be in your gem file that could be just similar to like greater than version two or not version one or any version so if you think of like ter- terms or traits as just a gem requirement that's like basically I guess very like those are very similar and then these terms can be represented into something called incompatibilities which in the pubgrub algorithm um there's two kind of main steps that I didn't really touch on in my talk the first one is something called unit propagation where it sounds really fancy but you're just uh looking at I guess the dependencies of a specific gem and looking at if they like looking at what version dependency so like if you say you have a, a gem called a and a depends on b and then the version of b that requires maybe it's greater than version one so in unit propagation that that dependency gets recorded so it'll record being like you can't install B less than one because A requires you to install B greater than one. So that term, not less than one, is recorded as an incompatibility, being like, you can't choose B less than one. And then the second phase, when that's completed, is called decision making so basically decides what version of b to install so if you have like versions of b i think most resolvers would just pick the most recent one and if that's that doesn't meet the incompatibility or like it doesn't if it's greater than one in my example then it works but then if it doesn't work then you would go through like a conflict resolution loop, which you, I guess, backtrack and then try and go up the resolution tree and then continue choosing another gem version. But the like the key point of these incompatibilities and these terms is that like that information is stored while you resolve. Yeah, while other dependency resolvers would just not record this incompatibility information and you would just end up going through similar loops of a path like oh I'll choose this version B but like we kind of already know that this this didn't work before but we don't know that it didn't work before so that's that's how powerful I guess PubGrub 
is compared to other resolvers. In essence, from what you described just now, I understand traits to be the possible links you can make between gem versions from a source to a destination. That's like looking for a gem that you want to install. The destination would be a successful install. And then the, the source would be the, the start of the search of the gem that fits the gem requirements through all the gem versions. This is what you call traits. Just the dependency part. And then I guess the you like basically explained the whole algorithm like to me <laughs> in like a couple of seconds, sentences, which you should be, uh, I should be interviewing you instead <laughs> of you interviewing me. That was great. No, no. I watched your talk twice already <laughs> and I picked those up from the, from the explanation she just gave me right now. But I just wanted to sort of summarize it in a way that I think I understand it and then confirm if I understand it is correct, right? So what I just described is how pop grab works, but what's traits actually? Yeah, the, the traits is just like, well, like I, I said traits in my talk, but it's actually, I, I learned this later on, but it, it's also it's also called terms. And that's just like the dependency requirement. So a greater than one is a term. And then less than two is another term. And you can like mix these up to create like more meaning. So like, yeah, like an incompatibility, like, real like not version one so it's a very like small part yeah so the trade would be just just the requirements that a particular general version needs for for its dependencies yeah hey Emmanuel Hayford here, and I want to tell you about AppSignal. AppSignal is a no-brainer monitoring for smart developers that allows you to track errors and performance in your apps. With AppSignal, you get beautiful dashboards that provide deep insights to quickly get to the root cause of problems. It's easy to set up, and with real human support, you'll be ready to track and crash bugs within minutes after installation. Check AppSignal out at appsignal.com. That's A-P-P-S-I-G-N-A-L.com. How does Compact Index optimize the process of retrieving version information for dependencies? Yeah, this is a very good question. I heard Compact Index a lot while I was getting started with RubyGems.org. And I thought it was this just like big black box that I didn't really need to get into. But I guess like for this talk, I'm like, I should probably figure out what this actually is. And there was a pretty long history. I found a great blog by Andre Arco. I don't know what the title is, but it takes you through the history of like the index or like how to serve information for dependency resolution. So this was a quite a while ago, but I think it was it it's still relevant as I like briefly talked about it with him a couple months ago but the history is that like at the very start gem information was stored on your machine as marshaled as a marshal file with just with the gem specs all marshaled and downloaded on your machine and a that's it used to store all of the gems 
And that's that took a lot of memory on your machine, but also also like server load. You had to request this every time and it was not sustainable. So the the compact index is basically developed, I think, seven to 10 years ago now, where if you've seen my talk, when you hit a couple of endpoints, they're all plain text. So each line represents, I guess, depending on what endpoint, there's an endpoint that just has the name of the gem and all of its available versions. And if you're interested in a particular version of the gem to find its like dependencies, then you could go to another endpoint and the, the dependencies endpoint and you can see what the gem requirements are. So it's a big improvement because we're not using Marshall anymore, which is known to have a lot of security issues with using them. Also, these file like with all these endpoints that the file is actually cached on your machine, which before there wasn't that that much of like caching mechanism to what I remember. So if the file needs to be updated, then you'll re-download the file onto your machine. And lastly, there's also checksum info. So with each gem, you get a checksum so you can verify if the gem has been tampered with when you just uh, download it. And the old system didn't have that before. So there, yeah, there's been like from this transition to this new like thing called the compact index. It's a lot better from the old way that we did it like 10 to 15 years ago, I, I think at this point. And they just deprecated this old system this year, which is amazing since no more Marshall. And yeah, everyone's using the compact index. The last two questions were based on um, the inner workings of Ruby gems, and um, I I know for a fact that the Ruby gems themes is working like really very hard to secure the ecosystem and make things uh, I don't know as secure as possible for every Ruby programmer. And um, one of the issues or one of the problems with security around Ruby gems is uh, typo squatting. Typo squatting, if I understand properly, is when people uh, take uh, the names of popular gems and then they sort of like make these slides natural typos and then they register the, the, the gem name and then they write uh, like a malicious gem hoping that you would download the wrong version of the gem that you you you, you want. <laughs> can, you, can you provide... Um, some specific examples of how typo squatting attacks can be mitigated by Ruby gems. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad that you touched on this topic since from going into the space, I learned that typo squatting is actually the top, I guess, supply chain related attack on our dependencies. So, like, it's, I didn't know typos can make cause a lot of impact. Uh, the second is 
account takeovers, which I also mentioned in my talk. But uh, yeah, specific examples. So in my talk, I mentioned something called the Levenshtein distance very briefly. So this was implemented, I think, quite recently. Like, I, well, when I mean quite recently, maybe years ago. But so they implement something called the Levenshtein distance. Like they use the Levenshtein distance where if someone tries to publish a gem that is that has the Levenstein distance of less than four for any gem that has more than 10,000 total downloads, then Ruby Gems would say, hey, that's not cool. Your name is too similar with another name. It'll give you the name of the gem. And when I mean like less than four, that means with Levenstein distance that what uh, it counts how many at least number of additions, removals, or edits you need to make to get from one gem name to another. So if something like, like Rails, R-A-I-L-S, yes, I spelled that right, and Riles, which I mentioned in my talk, R-I-A-L-S, that has 11 scientists of two. So if now you're trying to register that, it would uh, reject that name. Of course, I think Riles was registered 10 years ago, so this wasn't implemented yet. But that's, I guess, one way that RubyGems is actively trying to stop this. Another way that someone can mitigate typo squatting that's not like not a Ruby gems kind of thing, but as a user or something in a company is creating an, an allow list for your gems to use. So if you try to add a gem to the application's gem file and you like open a PR, one way you can create this allow list is like specifying the gems that you do allow um, in your company or whatever. And then if in a PR or something, there's a GitHub action, you can try and look through the installed gems on the gemfile.lock. And if there's any that isn't on your allow list, then maybe you won't merge that PR or think differently. So I think that's the best way to like catch typos. Yeah. With the typo squatting issue, what I what I do personally at work is, um, you know, there's a, I think what Ruby Gems, well, this is a suggestion, right? What you could talk about, what you could discuss with the team, like one of the solutions to uh, avoiding this typo squatting thing would be to get rid of the bundle add command that's where typos come from right so for instance if i people know that there is a command called uh called bundle add so they just go and type bundle add and then instead of typing rails they type riles right so like a, a point of entry into making typo squatting i think so if ruby gems could get rid of it completely that would be very useful or it could help at least uh, prevent some of these problems what i do personally at work is i if I need to install a gem, I go to Ruby Gems, type the gem there manually, open the page for the gem, 
go to the GitHub uh, go to the GitHub page for the gem, see what's going on there. And then I'm sure, okay, this is the gem that I want. And then I copy the name from Ruby gems and then I paste it inside my gem file <laughs> just to be sure. Wow, that, I, that's, <laughs> that yeah, is a, very thorough. I'm sure that a lot of people don't do that and just do bundle ad, right? Bundle ad for me is um I, I, I don't think it's a, it's a, it's 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 necessary to have it there if especially we want to help avoid some of these type of squatting issues. We've talked about securing like some of the challenges uh, around security as far as gem installations are concerned. But then there is another vector of attack, which is attacking the accounts of gem authors, right? Uh, what are some of the challenges linked with securing gem accounts and what measures are being taken to ad- address them? Yeah, yeah. So gem accounts are really important. When I mentioned my talk, if someone gets a hold of like, a popular gem maintainer's account, they can publish bad versions of any gem that they own or even yank versions, which many people don't talk about. They talk about malicious code, but removing gem versions is also really uh, bad in the sense that any application that like is deploying and then pulls in the gems that they need when they run bundle install, um, and the gem isn't there, it can be disruptive to the apps that need that gem. Um, but back to the question, the challenges, the most common way that I think people think about taking over gems is just knowing your account's username and password and then just logging in. So it does have just basic password protection and that like if your password is when you make your password and it's too similar to like some of the common passwords it won't allow you to create that password but another way that people can get a hold of your gem account is through your email so if they have get access to your email they can reset your password and then you're back in the game that's why i emphasize how MFA is so powerful in just like solving those two problems but there are more nuanced like attacks or challenges like if you have if an owner registers their account using email with a custom domain what if the domain expires then anyone can buy that domain, register the same email, reset the password in rubygems.org, which will go through to that to that email that you now own. And then you have access to the gem account, which I thought was very clever. But RubyGems does like it does check the the domains registered for like the maintainer's emails and if one day before the domain expires then the ruby gems account gets locked so we just assume that like if you're a responsible <laughs> i guess person you would renew your domain weeks in advance so giving like a day notice i don't think would change anything dramatic but and then other Everything else has to be 
social engineering base claiming that you do own this account, but or but you maybe like don't have your MFA. Like it's hard to like create a policy where you do want to give this account back to someone if it's actually theirs but what if they're just like trying to trick you into giving it to you so developing a policy of like show me proof that you actually own this account which can include like showing access that you have access like github access to the gem and having multiple other factors of authentication to be able to I don't know, reset their MFA or give ownership of a gem to a certain person. Yeah. So Open Connect is a layer for identity that's constructed on top of the OAuth 2.0 framework. Can you explain how the OIDC flow is being used to securely publish gems through continuous integration? Of course. So with securing an account, I mentioned that MFA is the best way to secure an account, but that doesn't really work when you use, I don't know, like GitHub Actions or an automated system to publish your gems. There isn't like a great way to like, I guess, prompt you to like put a multi-factor authentication code or like web often a lot of a lot of systems, what they do is that we we make people, well, to authorize the system to publish a gem, they store an API key into, I guess, the system, and they use the same API key to publish these gems. But the thing is, is that this is a pretty long-lived API key. And if someone has access to this automated system or like this API key, then they could do anything with it. So currently, uh, I mentioned that a lot of users, that MFA is a good part in securing owner's account. When you publish, you can MFA using a WebAuthn device or OTP code. But that doesn't really work on, yeah, continuous integration, right? You're not going to have someone enter a code or use a security key. And most how these continuous integration systems work is that they just store API key in their system. And then every time you publish, you're just using the same key. With OIDC, uh, there's not going to be a long-lived API key in the system, which is great because anyone that has access, they can just take the API key and then um, you just have access to the owner's account. So with OIDC, what happens is that say you have a GitHub action and on RubyGems, you put in some information about what this publisher looks like. Looks like So it's on GitHub, it's on this repo, uh, you only want to publish gems on one branch um, and just details about the repository. And it'll give you something called uh, a role ID or like a string that you put in your GitHub action. Um, so then when you run the GitHub action, 
it will request to Ruby Gems with something called like a JWT or a JSON web token, which in other words is just JSON of just the thing like the just representing what the requester and like who you're sending it to. So I I'm requesting this to revgems.org. I am from Git GitHub on this repo on this branch. And with this token, Ruby Gems will decode it, verify that everything is valid on their end, and they'll return an API key to you. And then this then the GitHub action can use this API key and then publish their gem. And this API key expires within a certain a short period of time, like maybe five to 10 minutes. So you're not going to have like a long-lived API key vulnerable for someone to take or things like that. Uh, during your talk, you mentioned uh, like stuff to look out for when we want to download secure gems. One of the things you mentioned is that, for instance, if you're going to download a secure gem, we can compare Rails to Rails, right? Rails has about 40,000 downloads and Rails has millions and millions of downloads, right? So obviously then it means the one that's most popular is uh, the more secure gem. It's the one that we are looking for. But I would like you to tell me what are some additional factors to consider when evaluating the safety of a gem beyond its popularity and the number of downloads. During my talk, I do, at the end, I say like, what can you do to make sure you're installing good gems? And popularity is very easy. You just go on the rerugems.org page, look at the downloads and be like, okay, it's a good sign that if a lot of people are downloading it, that means that that it's relatively like, what is it called? Known. And that like, it's not some other, some person's side project that like, isn't well-maintained. And I think that is important, like not just the safety, but like just good gem hygiene, like how well it's maintained is a good way to determine if you really want to use this gem. Like you, you can go on the GitHub repo and one of the ways you know if it's well maintained it's like when is the last time the gem was published is it was it really old because like even though you can pub people can publish bad gems there are like sometimes like unintentionally there's vulnerabilities in new vulnerabilities found in gems and like if the well gem isn't well maintained there's more chances of just like new like just bugs in the code or they depend the gem itself depends on older versions of other gems that do have security vulnerabilities so if it's checking how old the gem is is good when people are merging into main or the default branch of the github repo are there reviewers are or is it just one person merging things into 
the code. Like that is also another good sign since if you have reviewers reviewing the code, they can catch whether, I don't know, someone is like intentionally writing something malicious. But like all of these things are quite related to just like whether you want to use this gem or not and not really like security and all that but they're all tied together right a good gem is one that is well secured well maintained and there's those kinds of there's definitely intertwined with each other let's talk about the developer experience for uh ruby gems and um can you can you uncover any ongoing efforts by the Ruby Gems team to improve the efficiency of gem installation in Rails applications? Yeah, I can help give some color on that. So a lot of our efforts currently are within the security space, but something quite recently, the PubCrub resolvers act was actually introduced very quite recently in the system. So I think that was in the most recent times that has been a big boost in performance. And the gem install command, as I mentioned in my talk, still uses the one before that, which is Millennial. So it would be great to transition that into the PubGrub resolver, which is something always on the back burner. But other than that, I think there are a lot of, I don't personally work too much in the bundler and RubyGen space, but what I can gather is that there are a lot of edge cases when resolving dependencies. There's millions of possibilities and there are some edge cases that are taking forever. So making sure that like fixing bugs and making sure the that bundler can like can fix all these edge cases is really important because you can't really improve a system if you know that the system right now is good which is which in general is very good but there's always edge cases that come up from time to time from what i understand talking you. I, you know, I actually didn't know this, that Ruby Gems mm-hmm. is maintained by Ruby Central, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So it means like it's Ruby Central that steers the direction of Ruby Gems. They call the shots on what and how they want, uh, what they want Ruby Gems to do and how they want it to do it, right? Um, Ruby Central just helps uh, creates a team that um, helps helps call the shots. So Ruby Central itself is not like calling the shots on things, but they help, um, I guess, create a team and help fund the team to work oh, on this. Okay. Yeah. Makes, yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. Uh, but I, I will assume you know the answer to this because you're a maintainer at Ruby Gems. Uh, what are some of the future directions for the Ruby Gems ecosystem in terms of security performance and user experience? Yeah, there's a lot on the roadmap from what I can tell. Um, I think you categorized it very well. Security 
and user experience and um, all that. Uh, for security, um, I mentioned OIDC uh, was being worked on and uh, the team is also trying to like create a, a user flow solely on public, like using this flow to publish gems. So right now it's still um, being worked on, but um, another um, other things that we want to implement in Ruby Gems is gem signing or um, the most recent technology is um, SigStore. So being allowed to sign your gems for authentic, authentic, <laughs> authentic, I can't say that word, but making sure that it's authentic, <laughs> you know, uh, and it's not been tampered with. Um, and um, there's a lot of other moving components with six stores. So having a transparency log. What's, what's sure, that like, word? Six when, stores? Uh, yeah, six store. S I G S T O R E. Oh, six store. Okay, okay. I heard six yeah, stores. So. Like, what? <laughs> okay, yeah, when okay. I first heard, I'm like, is something S store. I don't really know what this person is saying, but yeah, it's like signature and then right, store. So right. yeah, it makes store sense. signatures and all that. Um, so that's something um, that. Uh, is on the roadmap. Um, let me actually like uh, pull something up because um, I went to RubyConf um, quite recently and um, Samuel, who is a, a maintainer of RubyGems, gave a great talk on like the state of RubyGems, which actually touches a lot on like the, what... Um, the Ruby Gems team was like and the history of Ruby Gems and I highly recommend and also gives a good overview of the future. Like I I do know of some things, but he had a great list um, during his talk. So I'm just gonna quickly fetch that off. So I'm not missing anything too big. Um, that and something called the update framework, which I... Uh, don't have too much knowledge of, but um, the update framework basically uh, is able to detect a one way to, to I guess, inject malicious code is just to attack RubyGems in general or the repository, like the AWS bucket that um, the gems live on. And the update framework basically is able to detect or like help signal if um, if a gem has been tampered with in uh, the gem repository. So that's something else that is working, been work, is in that has been ongoing. Um, that's in the security realm. The people I invite to my podcasts, uh, people I look up to myself. And people I want to learn from always. I want to learn from you. I want to learn from, like, from everyone in the Ruby community. And I'm sure my users, <laughs> my users, <laughs> and, I'm sure listen- <laughs> and I'm sure listeners would also be eager to know what kind of books 
have impacted your career the most? Yeah, um, this is a great tradition. Um, I do want to say that I'm not a huge book reader, so I might not give the most. I'll give the non-book reader perspective. I I look up to people that can crush a book in a month or two. I I I like learning through talks. Like I love. Uh, re-watching Rails World talks and other talks and then going to their resources and then reading because I have a really bad attention span. If you if you don't grab me in the first two pages, then it might be a lost cause for me. But um, one book that I actually got all the way through and it's been like widely um recognized is um ruby under the microscope um not really rails related but more ruby related and like when i mentioned demystifying the ruby package ecosystem this really demystifies the ruby programming language from what i heard from other people is that like even though like the ruby version that the book is based on is pretty outdated um it does give a good foundation. Like a lot of the concepts are still relevant, like parsing, um, virtual machine, um, and like all of that kind of work. And um, I would definitely go through it again, actually most recently, because I went to RubyConf and I I hear those terms mentioned a lot, like um, parsing and evaluating and, or the virtual machine, uh, but it's still, um, I feel like I need to go back to the book and like revisit those concepts and be like, oh yeah, this makes sense again. Uh, I feel like um, the, like creating a language is, and like seeing how a language works is really interesting. So, um, and the book was really digestible and uh, can explain these terms to someone that um, isn't familiar and it, so yeah it's very readable um another another book i i do also recommend like i quite recently gotten more into like the world of like designing i guess like better code like i better code design and like object oriented programming and um i always recommend like the 99 bottles uh book from um sandy metz um i got introduced to this book maybe like a week into me learning ruby like four to five years ago and i thought it was like like especially sandy metz's talks i found very fascinating on how you can like create so like you have so many strategies to um make your code look beautiful and every time sandy just like i don't know there's one about the gilded rose and just watching her like create this ball of mess into like something so elegant like always i don't know like i like it's something i look up to for sure 
Thank you very much, Jenny Shen. I won't take any more of your time. Thanks for coming on The Real Shinzak. Thanks for inviting me. Have a nice day, man.